Okay, so uh, we are starting a new series today, and uh, so that's good. If this is your first time here with us, this is a good time to join us. And we're starting a series called For the Life of the World. For the Life of the World. And, you know, let me start off with a little story of when I first started going to church. I was, uh, I mean, I've been to like VVS and stuff like that every once in a while, but the first time I really started going to church was my senior year in high school. And I remember going into service, and I sat down with the person who brought me there. I'm sitting down, and like a lot of the words that the pastor was saying, I did not understand. Like they were using words that I, you know, like if you're not raised in the church environment, there are some words that you just never heard before, like or you heard of, but people don't use that often. Like um, the word disciple was something that I've never heard before going to church. Um, people kept using the word blessed, and I had no idea what that was. You know, hallelujah is another word that I've never heard. And so I felt like an outsider. I felt like, what is going on at this church? They're using some lingo that I don't get. And I get it. If you go to, like, the skateboard park or whatever, they use their lingo. If you go to a concert, they probably use their lingo. If you're part of the AV team, they'll use different lingo than the people who, you know, are not part of it. So I get it, right? I mean, when you go into a certain place, there's a certain culture there. And a lot of times, if you're new there, you just don't feel like you belong. And maybe, you know, this is your first time joining us and you're like, I don't know this church. Like, like everybody else seems to know what they're doing, but I don't know what I'm doing, right? And so, I mean, for, for those of you, if that's you, we hope that you know, whatever, however we can make it more comfortable for you guys, we want to do that for you. But I'm just showing you my experience of people who are outside the culture going into a culture. And so today, and for the rest of the sermon series, we're going to be talking about how we're supposed to act in certain cultures. And if you're like, why do we need to talk about that? You'll see the importance of it. Today is the introductory sermon as to why it's important that we're supposed to talk about this stuff. So let me start off with a question, this one. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And if you were to ask a lot of Christians out there, a lot of them will give you an answer that's related to this thing called personal atonement. Now, if you don't know, that's another church lingo right there. If you don't know what that means, that means after I die, I'm going to go to heaven instead of going to hell. That's personal atonement. And, you know, that, and here's the problem with that. And I'm not saying that's not true. That's true. But the problem with that is that for the past 200 to two, like three, like about 250 years, that was not the main point of being a Christian. This is a fairly relatively new thing. Okay, I'm not saying that this is a new teaching, like going to, when you die, go to heaven, that's a new thing. But that wasn't the reason why many people became a Christian. That wasn't the highlighting feature of our faith. As a matter of fact, for the first 1,000, and if I do my math correctly, 1,700 plus years, of Christianity, it was not about that. It was about what you do in this life while you're still alive. So just imagine, okay, I'm gonna try to create two scenarios here. In the past, for the majority of Christianity, it was about, hey, I wanna be a follower of Jesus because of what I'm going to do, how I'm gonna live my life before I die. And if I die, there's that thing waiting for me, but the main feature was how you live your life right here, right now, okay? But for the past 250 years, we made it the main feature, the highlighting feature, like, hey, you want to go to heaven? You know, sign up for Jesus, right? That's become the highlighting feature. But what happened is, okay, over here, you live your life according to the ways of Jesus, and if you die, you know, like every part of your life was covered in the, your understanding of your faith. But in the new version of Christianity, there's a big vacancy. Like, what are you supposed to do while you're alive? I know what I'm going to do after I die. 
I need to learn how to play that harp and get, you know, get wings or I don't know what, what people believe nowadays, right? But the main feature was, you know, before it was what you did before you died, but now the focus is on what happens after you die. While you're living, you have no idea what you're supposed to do. So for 250 years, around, you know, that's not an exact number, for 250 years, people started filling in the gap on their own. What are we supposed to do when, while we're still living? What are we supposed to do before we die? So the more important question we have to ask is this. How is a Christian supposed to live? Because we've forgotten the purpose of what it means to be a Christian. So for, like I said, for the past 250 years, basically that's how old evangelicalism is. For that amount of time, the church, we have responded to that vacancy, how we're supposed to live our lives before we die, with our gut feeling. Yes, like how we, you know, and I'll share with you what that is. Because for the past 250 plus years, this is what the church has been doing. There's two things that we've been doing. The first thing is we call fortification. Fortification is when you build up walls around you. We believe that we are right. We believe that we are ethical people. We believe that we are pure people. But the world, oh no, they, that's evil. You know, like we don't want them to infiltrate us. Our children, they only listen to, to Christian music, but they, you know, the rap music out there, we don't want that coming into the ears of our innocent children. So you start building walls. You start saying like, we're not gonna allow that in the house. I'm not gonna go to that gathering. You know, and you start building walls. And because you're isolated from the, wall, from the world around you, you start creating your own Christian version of the things that you find on the outside. You have your own Christian concerts, you have your Christian t-shirts, you have your Christian music, you have your Christian, you know, everything, right? You made your own version of that. And that's fortification. This is what the church has been doing for the past 250 plus years. Now, is that found in the scriptures? Yes, there are examples of that in the Old Testament where people would, you know, say like, okay, make sure you marry within your tribe. Make sure that you, you know, guard yourself from outside influence. Yes, that's in the Bible, but that wasn't the main thing. The second thing that happens is what we call domination. Domination is when you look at the world and say, wow, there's so much evil out there. We don't want them to come inside of our walls. And you know, it's been really hard keeping up these walls because the world, you know, through the TV and the, through the movies and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're coming into our house. So you know what we need to do? We need to go to the source of the evil and destroy it. This culture is our enemy, so we're gonna go over there. We're gonna start protesting. And you know, I'm not saying protesting is bad, but I'm just saying that the way that they view these, you know, that we have been viewing the culture around us is that they are our enemy and we're gonna do everything we can to squash it because we wanna make sure that we're safe. Now, what do these two things have in common? Right, I mean, first one is fortification, the second one is domination, which is more like a culture war, cultural war mentality, right? What do these things have in common? Well, they both talk about the us versus them mentality. We believe, like, you know, this is what we've been saying for the past 250 plus years. We've been saying that, look, there is an invasion of evil into our culture, into the church culture. And we gotta do everything we can to stiff arm them from getting in here, right? And so because we are right and the world is wrong, we're not gonna listen to them anymore. So if the world says, hey, science shows blah, 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 we're like, no, 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 we don't wanna hear it because we're always right. You guys should be learning from us, we shouldn't be learning from you. Right? And this is what happens when you start building walls around us. And, and another thing that these two things have in common is that they believe that there's this urgency there. That if we don't do something about it, some irreversible damage is gonna happen. And so we gotta make sure that the truth gets out there. 
you know, and we got to change everything. We got to take over the government. We got to do what we can to make sure that we are safe and that our children are safe, and then this continues as long as possible. But let's peel, peel that layer a little bit more, because where that comes from is from this idea that we are Jesus followers. And Jesus followers, we don't feel like we fit into this culture. We take a knee to Jesus. We live in a world where people don't do that. And for that reason, we have to either fortify or dominate. But what if I were to tell you that there's another option? That we don't have to fortify or dominate. As a matter of fact, those two things are anti-gospel. Because the Bible talks about another way of approaching this issue when you feel like you don't belong in the land that you're living. You see, in the Bible, there's, it's actually one of the biggest themes in the Bible that we don't really talk about too much. And so today, for the, for the remaining of the series, we're going to talk about it, which is, in the Bible, there's this theme of a group of people called the people of God who live in a land that's filled with people who are not the people of God. And these people are called exiles. Exiles, simply Exiles are people who feel like they don't fit in. God's people are taken to a certain place where God's people are not the majority, and they feel like exiles. So the question that we have to ask is this. What are God's people supposed to do while we live among people who aren't like us? We believe in Jesus. We follow Jesus, but we live in a land that doesn't. So should we start building up walls? Should we start dominating? God would say, no, there's another option. And there's a very rich theology there that we all have to understand. So what we're gonna be looking at today is the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, there's a prophet by the name of, said name, Jeremiah, right? And he receives a word from God. And in this message, what he's told is, look, your people are the quote unquote people of God, the Israel, you know, like Jews, you guys are the people of God, but you're not acting like it, guys. You guys need to, you guys need to act more like God's people. And they're like, nah, we're, you know, we're your people. You're not going to punish us for, you're not, you know. He's like, you want me, are you calling my bluff? You know? And so eventually God's like, hey guys, in a few weeks, few days, it doesn't say, but in the near future, there's going to be the Babylonians, the barbarians of those days. These, these people are very brutal. They're going to come and invade your land. They're going to destroy all the things that you held dear to you, such as the temple and the buildings and your homes. And then he's going to take some of you guys, and he's going to take you back into Babylon, and you're going to be exiles, people of God living amongst people who just took them away, people of God living amongst enemies. And what we're going to look at today is the very last speech that Jeremiah gives before this whole invasion takes place. So let's take a look. This is Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to start from verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, let's pause right here. There's something that's really interesting that, that we need to take note here. It says here that it is I, God, who have exiled you. If you've ever felt like you're in a place that you don't belong, like, yeah, I'm the only Jesus follower at my workplace. I'm the only Jesus follower amongst my friends. In my class, I feel like everybody is... I think I'm the only Christian there. Why would God put me here? Like, what, what, according to what Jeremiah is saying here is, it's possible that it was God who placed you there. It's not by some accident. Okay, so he starts with that mindset saying, guys, 
If you find your place in a situation, if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you just don't belong, it's possible that God placed you there for a reason. So while you're in exile, while you live in a land where you're not surrounded by people who are the people of God, this is what I want you to do. First tip, he says this, I want you to build. I want you to build houses and settle down. I want you to plant your roots in this place that you don't call home. I want you to build homes. I want you to have new neighbors who are not like you. I want you to become friends. Share your bowl of sugar with them, you know, bake for them, do whatever you can. Become friendly with the people who live around you. Okay, well, how about this, God? How about I'll build my house, because in here it doesn't say you have to be friendly with your neighbors. I'm just gonna build my house and I'll live there until this whole exile's over. Well, God's like, I thought you would say that, so let me be more clear what I meant. I want you to build house build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Now, if you've been with us for the past, I don't know how many years, you know that the word garden in the Jewish scriptures has a lot more to do than planting tomatoes. The word garden is supposed to bring us back to the idea of the Garden of Eden. What he's saying is, I want you to create paradise in enemy territory. And I want you to eat. And if you understand Jewish culture, eating is a very intimate thing. Share food with one another. Become intimate friends with your neighbors. Well, how about we'll do that, you know, but we'll keep our kids locked in the house. That way they'll be safe. And, you know, the parents will do the mingling with our neighbors because we don't feel safe. It's like, ah, I thought you would say that too. So here's the next part of this command. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. And when they're talking about this, they're not talking about marry other people who are also Israelites or Jews. What he's saying is your neighbors who are not like you, who are your enemies, get to know them. Maybe one day they'll get married. They'll marry a person from the people who are not like you. Get to know them. Get to know their culture. Live as if this is your home. Well, why? Why, why God? Why do we have to do that? He tells us the next verse, because I want you to increase in number and do not decrease. Now, if the lights on your dashboard are lighting up, beep, 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 because you're a Genesis nerd like I am, okay? You're like, I've seen that line somewhere before, increase in number, where have I heard that before? In the very beginning when God created humanity, he told them to increase and fill the earth. He's saying, I want you to live out God's original purpose right there in enemy territory. Do you want to know what it looks like to be in exile? Live amongst the people that you don't agree with. Live amongst the people and get to know them, become friends, share meals with them, create paradise in the place that you're placed by God. I know this is the opposite of fortifying, right? But he's not done here. Verse 7. Also, seek the, pe- seek the peace, that's the word shalom in the Hebrew, and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Peace, shalom, very different from the English definition of peace. Peace Peace in America in English means no chaos, right? Peace in the Hebrew culture means everything is right. So it's not like, hey, let's not have any war. That's peace, right? No, it's like, let's not have war, but also let's make sure that everything is as it should be. That's what shalom means. While you're there in exile, make sure that you can do all that you can, your resources, your time to make everything right. And not only that, we want these people to prosper. Whoa, 
God, you want the enemy to prosper? Yes, I want the enemy to prosper. Well, God, I thought you were on our side. Like, I thought, what's going on here, God? Is this a trick? Am I hearing voices in my head? Is it, what's going on here, God, right? Like, how am I even supposed to do that? They're not even going to listen to me, if I, even, if, even if I try. It's like, well, if you hit a snag, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray to the Lord for it. Yeah, ask me. He says, ask me to prosper your enemies. Go ahead. You know, like, you don't know what to do? Just pray, get on your knees and say, God, can you help my enemies prosper? Now, when was the last time that we asked the people, like, that we prayed for the people that we disagree with and say, God, I would love for that group of people to prosper? Uh, yeah, if you're crazy, you might have prayed that prayer. But God is saying, that's what you need to pray for because the people of God are people who love. Yeah, this is getting harder and harder, right? This message is getting more and more convicting. But then he's like, and here's the reason why. Because if it prospers, if the city of Babylon, the, the, the empire of Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. Whoa, what are you saying, God? Let me summarize. Live as if your well-being is tied to your enemy's well-being. None of that if they lose, then I win. None of that. In order for me to be happy, they have to weep. None of that. Because that's the us versus them mentality. What God is calling for us as exiles to do is this idea of us for them instead of us versus them. Put yourself in a position where in order for you to be happy, in order for you to prosper, in order for you to win, it requires the enemy also to win the people who are not like you to win. Now, I know there's a temptation because you know, God is like, okay, here's the last speech I'm gonna give you and off you go to exile, right? And while you're in exile, you're like, maybe I misheard God. Maybe that's, you know, like, oh, here, here's another prophet that's telling us the exact opposite, right? So he's like, okay, to make sure that doesn't happen, this is what he says. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you to deceive you because these people are in exile every day thinking, I can't wait until the, day we go, until the day we go home. How many more days, God? How many more days? What? Oh, there's, there's a pastor here that's telling us otherwise. He's, this pastor here is telling us that we should build up walls until the day we go home. He's like, and if that's the case, next verse, do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Like you've been whispering in their ear, please prophesy that, that, that this is a temporary thing and that and it is a temporary thing, but like that... We don't have to do this for our enemies. And then he says, no, no, no. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. If there's anybody among you who says, no, us versus them. It's like, don't listen to them because that's not from me. They might even use my name, thus saith the Lord, but don't listen to them. They're trying to deceive you because this is all about us for them. They should feel lucky that we are in their land. In other words, God's people are called to seek the welfare of where they are placed. The reason why God has you at your workplace, even if you're going to change work until the day you leave amongst your friends, even though maybe after you go to college, you won't see them anymore, for the time that you are with them, God has placed you there for a reason. And that reason is that you are there to bless them. Now, does that mean that we're supposed to like, become like them? Like, so you're saying, Kotz or Jeremiah, because I'm just 
channeling what Jeremiah is saying, right? So what you're telling me, Jeremiah, is we should be one of them. Like, we should be like them. And no, no, that's not what Jeremiah is saying here. He's not saying, you know, um, now that you're in a foreign land, toss away Jesus, toss away anything that you learned from the Bible, and be like the people you're living with. That's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, we know that because a few chapters later in Jeremiah, before they leave the land, taken away from the land, he buys a plot of land that's about to get taken over. He buys it, has a deed, he buries a hole, uh, he digs a hole in the ground, buries it, because he knows that one day he, he, or after he dies, his descendants will be returning to live there again. So he knows in the back of his mind, like, look, yes, we're going to be in a foreign land. Yes, we're going to be blessing those people. But we cannot forget who we are. We are the people who are supposed to be living here in Israel. We are the people who are supposed to be blessing, you know. So this is not an excuse to say, hey, we wanna, we're going to be just like you. That's not what it is. This is, their way, this is Jeremiah's way of saying, you will maintain who you are. At the same time, while you're in exile, you're going to be blessing and doing everything you can to, to make them prosper. They're like, wow, so that's what we're supposed to do. That's, so you're not telling us to blend in. You're telling us to be the unique presence of God in the land of the people who are not like us. Okay, got it. Okay, so how do we do that? Like, how do we bless our community? Kotz, can you give me like five steps? Like, just give me five things that we have to do, preferably that starts with the same letter, and then, then we'll, we'll be on our way. Well, it turns out it's not that easy. It's a lot harder. As a matter of fact, people spend their entire lives trying to figure this stuff, stuff out. What we're trying to do here at Westlight is we're trying to introduce this idea into your minds so that you could take this and figure it out for yourself. But today is just the introductory part. I'm going to teach you a Greek word that you don't have to memorize, okay? But there's this word, which is oikonomia. That's where we get the word economy. Oikonomia in the Greek, what it means is management how we ought to manage certain things. And I was like, how can I demonstrate this in a way that's not conceptual? So here, here's, here's what I came up with. What I want you to think about is the idea of an orchestra. Orchestra. God is the conductor. And I don't know anything about orchestrating or symphonies or what do you, whatever you call them. Bands? I don't know. But the, the, my guess is that the conductor stands in the middle and he holds the magic wand. What is that? Baton? I thought a baton was one of those. This is a baton? Okay, so you see, I don't even know. Okay, so a baton, right? And as God is conducting, conducting is the proper word, I think, conducting the orchestra, we have the piano over here, and we have the violin over there. I don't know if the placement's all wrong. Mr. Hart knows exactly what I, what I should be saying right now, but I don't know. Okay, right, and then you have the bass section over there somewhere, over here. Over here, okay, yeah, and then uh, um, you have the, the percussion down around in the back. Okay, well, okay. I am clearly not this guy, okay? <laughs> okay, each instrument needs to be practiced, right? Because the person who plays the piano is not gonna understand how to play the bass guitar. And the bass guitarist isn't gonna know how to, if there's vocalist, isn't going to necessarily know how to sing unless you're one of those people that I just detest because you can play instruments and sing. And <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I can't do either, actually. So, um, right, and, and every single person, every single section has an instrument to play. Each of those instruments is your oikonomia. God has called you to play that instrument in a very specific way, okay? And when everybody plays their part perfectly, right, or good enough, 
and then we put it all together, we have God's big oikonomia. He is playing this beautiful music that he's playing through, you know, and everybody in the hall is like, wow, this is the greatest symphony that I've ever experienced. And so God is saying to Jeremiah, you know, to, to his people, like, hey, when you go to an exile, this is what I want you to do. If you are an amazing planter, I want you to be the best gardener you could be. If you are a person that, I don't know, is great at business, I want you to use your business skills to help Babylon prosper. If you are somebody who is a great educator, I want you to educate the people of Babylon to the best of your ability. Every single person needs to play their part in order for God's blessing to pour over the land. This is God's oikonomia. This is the way that he wants everybody to play. And so God is like, okay, guys, ready? And I don't know if they do this or if it's just in TV's shows. And, you know, they take the baton, baton, and they go, I don't know, do they clear their throats? Okay. And then they have their table, they flip it out, and they start playing, right? And as soon as God starts waving his baton, we all do our part, and all of a sudden, the whole world hears the music and say, wow, this. This is something that is super beautiful, and I want to be a part of that. So like, oh, that's cool. Okay, so you're like, okay, I get it, Kat. So what you want me to do is whatever I'm good at, whatever my gift is, that you want me to go and do it to the best of my ability. Got it. Okay, but God, can you give me like a preview of what this whole thing sounds like? I mean, what does this, so- what, what does this music actually sound like? Like, can you give me a preview? And as it turns out, God tells us what that symphony is supposed to sound like because he's played this music before. He's played this in the very beginning in the first page of, of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And if you're like, Kotz, you talk about Genesis 1 way too much. Yeah, I'm going to do it more today because <laughs> Genesis nerd, right? Um, but there might be some things that we might have overlooked. So I want to stop and pause and ask, ask a few questions after each verse, and maybe you'll start to see the symphony that God's playing here. Okay, so it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's stop right there, pause. Have you ever asked the question, why? God couldn't have created the heavens and the earth. It's not like he was bored. God's not like, yawn, I got nothing else to do. I'm just going to create the heavens and the earth today. That's not God. Why did God create the heavens and the earth when he clearly had the choice not to? And he has eternal, like he has foresight. So he'll be like, by doing this, I'm going to have to sacrifice my son one day. Maybe it's not worth doing this at all. Like, why did he do this? What was his inspiration? Well, let's look at the second verse. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness. There was chaos. God could have left it that way. But he was like, no. I'm going to hover my spirit over the waters. He couldn't have. He didn't have to, but he did it. Why? What was his motivation? What was his inspiration for doing this? Does God have a reason for doing this? Because he clearly didn't have to, right? Then the first commands uttered in the Bible, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Maybe God has an obsession with light. You know, it's like, oh, it's dark there. I got to do something. Um, okay, light. And you're like, why did he do that? Again, what was his motivation? What is the reasoning behind this? He clearly didn't have to do it. And then in the next verse, 
the author gives us an insight as to why God did this. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, this word good right here, next slide, is the Hebrew word tov. Tov, T-O-V, tov. You can impress your friends, like, hey, I learned Hebrew today. Tov. Now, the word tov has several meanings. The translators of the Bible look at the word tov and say, okay, the best way that I could translate this, given the context, is the word good. But when a Hebrew person reads through the scriptures, they're seeing the word tov, and they're thinking good, but they're also bringing along with that several other definitions of the word tov. I'll give you an example. The word tov also means ethical. So when God saw the light was ethical, he separated the light from the darkness. Do you see how that works? The word tov also means ethical. It also means appropriate. He's like, it just seemed right that I would do this, right? Another word, uh, translation of the word tov is it's fruitful. But there's another definition for the word tov that I think a lot of ancient Jewish rabbis and scholars really held on to. Because the word tov also means beneficial. Beneficial. In other words, when God created light, when God created the heavens and the earth, when God sent his spirit to hover over the waters, he was doing it for someone. He had someone in mind while he created all these things. What else did he create, Kotz? Well, here's a list right here. God, this is just chapter one. God also created day, he created night, he created time, he seasons, waters, skies, ground, seas, vegetation, trees, flowers, fruit, seeds, ecosystems, light, sun, moon, solar system, sea life, animals, birds, food, procreation, creativity, order, care, love, food. Oh, I put food in there twice. Rest, because food is so good, right? Rest, his image, and partnership. He gave us all these things when he didn't have to. But he gave us all these things because he thought it was beneficial for us. The word tov is repeated seven times in Genesis chapter one. As you guys know, seven is the number of completion. That means it's a perfect number. The author really wanted us to know that when God created the world, he had someone in mind. And that someone is humanity. Okay, so when you look at this, God is playing a symphony. God is playing something that he wants the whole world to know that this is his jam, this is his tune. And what is that tune? That tune is this, that God, all this stuff is gift. Everything is gift. God is the ultimate gift giver. He didn't have to give us light, but he's like, but I'm, I'm a gift giver, I have to. God didn't have to give us food. Do you think God created food for himself? Like, can God eat food, <laughs> right? No, he didn't create food for himself, he created food for us, so we could enjoy food. God created companionship. God created all these things because God is the ultimate gift giver, because he loves us. And the scriptures tell us that we are his image. So as people who are just like God in image, that means when humanity is placed on earth as his image bearers, we looked around and he said, hey, look at those plants. God gave us water, we're gonna give it water because we are gift givers just like God. Look at the animals. We're going to feed him and her and those other animals out there in the sea and in the sky. Why? Because God is a gift giver. He's given us gifts. And God said, hey, if you're a gift giver just like me, that you have authority over these animals. And by the way, the word authority there, we think authority is like someone who dominates over other people or other stuff. Authority in scripture means caretaker. 
if you are truly an image of God, you will be taking care of the trees. You will be taking care of the animals. You will be taking care, because you also are gift givers. But in the third page of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, we start to forget what our true purpose in life is. And because of that, we cease to be gift givers. And because of that, creation, all of creation starts to suffer. It starts to fall apart. But then God says, I'm not done with you guys yet. I'm still the ultimate gift giver. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the greatest gift that I've ever given in the entire existence of God. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to send you my son in human form to this earth. The ultimate gift. And then Jesus stands and he starts giving gifts. He gives, it's not just material things. He's like, you need a second chance? I'm going to give that to you. Are you pushed out of community? I'm going to bring you back into community. Do you have guilt, shame? I'll take that on for you. And then, right when you thought he can't give any more, he gives his life. And when he does that, it restores all of us. Jesus restores us as gift givers. Or at least that's how it's supposed to go. <laughs> that's how the story's supposed to go, <laughs> right? If you notice, in the early writings of, of the church, so we're talking about the New Testament, you don't really see people saying, look at Jesus die on the cross. Now I get to go to heaven after I die. No, they're saying like, you've restored us. We could love our neighbors. We could tear down walls now. This was the true meaning of being a Christian in the first century. But these Christians in the first century found themselves in exile. They were surrounded by communities and societies, cultures that didn't agree with them. So God picks up his baton and says, whatever you do, I want you to do well. And he starts to play. It's like, okay, over here in the city of Corinth, start doing your thing. People here in Ephesus, start doing your thing. People over there in Galatia, start doing your thing. And as he starts to wave his baton, they start loving on their neighbors selflessly, radically. And the world starts to change because for the first time in many people's lives at that time in history, they'd never heard that music before. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be going over five areas of our lives that God wants us to tune our instruments. We're going to be looking at relationships and love. How are we supposed to do our families? How are we supposed to relate to other people? How are we supposed to relate to our neighbors? And then the week after that, we're going to talk about work. How does God see work? How are we supposed to deal with employment? Like, and how is that tied to our purpose in life? Third week, we're going to be looking at order and justice. There's, we're living in a land with a set of laws. How are we supposed to live according to those laws? Are those laws supposed to be there? As Christians, are we supposed to follow them? Are we not supposed to? The week after that, we're going to talk about education and wisdom that it's important that we learn stuff, right? It's important that we gain knowledge and apply it to our lives. And then finally, we're gonna talk about wonder and beauty. What is the role of art in the kingdom of God? And so I hope you guys come to these sermons or at least catch it online because I think this is a really important teaching that is missing in a lot of churches today. And, you know, shamefully, um, 
I'm responsible for not teaching that here for the last, I don't know, 17 years. So, so better late than never. And so while we're getting our hearts ready, like I said, today's just an introductory. There's two questions that I want you to go home with. And let's prepare your hearts, I'll prepare your mind for the series. And you could talk about it over lunch, talk about it as you drive home, you know. And this is what, here are the two questions. The first one, have I taken the posture of us versus them instead of us for them? Now, as Christians, we're taught to give the right answer. What I want you to really sit with, and might make you uncomfortable, is the us versus the mentality creeps up on you. Like you'll be doing something and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a minute, I thought I was a us for them kind of guy, but as it turns out, I am a us versus them type of person. And start processing what's causing me. Is it fear? Is it because I don't trust my neighbors? You know, maybe when you watch a sports game, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, the us versus them thing does come up a lot, doesn't it? Right? If the other team wins, let's be happy for them, okay? All right, the second question is this. Do I have the reputation of a blesser of my community? Whether if it's your work, your, your circle of friends, do the people there know you as the guy that says, hey, you know, whenever this guy's not here, whenever this lady's not here, I feel like something's missing. Like we used to prosper when this guy was here, you know, right? I mean, the thing that God is really trying to do through Jeremiah and in, in the book of Jeremiah is like one day God's gonna pull everybody out of exile and put you back in your land. At that point, are the people in Babylon gonna say, man, we miss those people? <laughs> like, are they gonna say, man, I don't know what it is about them, but they come to work early and they stay late. I don't believe in their God at all, but dude, I really want my kids to marry one of those people, right? There's something about these groups, like God wants them to leave the land with the reputation of knowing that because of them, we are better off for it. Do you have that reputation in your community? Because really when it comes down to it, God really wants us to care about the people around us, because that's what love requires us to do. And if anything, think about what Jesus did for us. He could have been like, I'm perfect, I'm God, you're not. <laughs> so us versus them, right? But instead, God says, no, I'm gonna come and dwell among you. I'm gonna be one of you. I'm not gonna compromise on who I am, but I will be among you, and I will bless you. And I think that's what we're called to do, as Christ is. We are supposed to be people who are praying for the life of the world. Amen? All right, let's pray.